Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the last session of uh, the day. So my name is Ashraf. Uh, I'm a solutions architect uh, from Paris. And I'm very happy to be here today with Luca, who's the VP of architecture at The Zone. So if you look at the title of the session, you will see three main keywords that will articulate uh, our presentation. So first, you've got micro front ends, uh, where I will explain uh, the, the topic and what kind of problems it is trying to solve. So it's a 100 level introduction to, uh, to the topic. If you want to learn more, uh, you can search for Luca's online talk on this uh, subject, and he's also writing a book uh, with O'Reilly. Um, the other uh, keyword is serverless, which quickly brings AWS Lambda on the table. However, uh, serverless at the edge is a different story. So I will talk about Lambda at edge and more generally AWS Edge services. I will assume that you are familiar with content delivery networks, uh, also called CDNs, and specifically the CDN of AWS CloudFront. And the third part is about building. So I will share with you some common use cases uh, on how you can customize micro front ends at the edge using Lambda at edge. This is the advanced part where I'll be sharing uh, some code examples, uh, best practices, and some architectures. So with that being said, let's start. So thanks to the daily engagement uh, with my customers uh, on a daily basis, I got quite hands-on with CloudFront and Lambda at Edge. However, my knowledge of micro frontends and more generally microservices was a little bit theoretical, which is challenging for this talk. So in order to overcome this challenge and put your, myself in your shoes, um, I participated earlier this year to a workshop uh, in London by AWS called You Build It, You Run It. So uh, we were a bunch of people with different profiles, developers, ops, and they gave, gave us the goal of building a website for a fictive airline company. So uh, we were divided in different teams. For example, um, we had the booking team, the loyalty team, the catalog team, and the payment team. And in AWS, we call such teams the uh, two pizza teams, because a single team shouldn't be bigger than what two pizzas can feed at a time. Myself, I was uh, in the payments um, uh, team. So guess what? In two days, just two days, we were able to have our website up and running. And this is really where I understood the power of breaking a, an application into smaller components and have each component specialized in a single domain and have an organization that leverages that. So there's the link for the workshop if you want to uh, do it yourself, and I highly recommend it. So actually, if you look at the history um, of human work, it's a story of division of labor. And the uh, uh, organization of IT is not an exception. Microfrontends is just one of the latest chapters of this story. So what is driving this evolution? It is survival. In order to survive in a highly competitive environment, you need to react fast to your uh, uh, environment, basically by, for example, releasing a new feature or scaling to sudden demand. The faster you iterate, the more innovative you become, because you can uh, uh, iterate, basically you can uh, experiment with ideas, fail, and learn quickly. So it's a question of speed. To illustrate this, I will go through the evolution uh, of web application architectures, starting from the first monolith, uh, and I will use the example of uh, my fictive airline company as an example. 
So in the monolith, we had a single team managing a single code repository. Um, that is quite uh, good for starting a new idea because you don't have all of this organizational overhead of other approaches. But as you know, uh, it makes feature development uh, quite slow and it doesn't scale very well. So this is why we uh, evolved to the three-tier architectures where we divide our application to three layers. You've got the uh, presentation layer, which is responsible for the user interaction, generally handled by the front-end team. Then you've got the application layer that handles the business logic, uh, such as the booking uh, workflow. And then the data layer, which is responsible for storing information, such as the passengers uh, or the bookings. And both of them are handled by the back-end team. With that approach, you can make technological uh, decisions independently for each of the layers and scale each one uh, also independently. For example, for the presentation layer, uh, you can scale horizontally using auto-scaling groups and load balancers. However, if you look at uh, the backend, all of the services are still using the same uh, te technology, frameworks, database, uh, and uh, working on the same code, code base, basically, which is still creates friction for feature development, and we want to reduce that. So here comes microservices, where we divide the backend into uh, multiple uh, compo smaller components each component is responsible for a business logic, and uh, they only communicate amongst each other through well-defined APIs. With this approach, each microservice is owned by a single team that is responsible for making all the technological decisions, such as uh, the programming languages, the framework, the database, and so on. We see also that this concept goes uh, uh, very well with continuous integration and deployments as well as with serverless, because they all aim at the same thing, speeding up feature development. However, you notice that all of the microservices are still depending on one single team, which is the micro front-end team. And this is what micro front-ends is trying to solve by uh, uh, completing basically this breakdown until the, uh, the front-end. So, with micro front-ends, you need to apply domain-driven design to your application and to your organization. For example, in the case of uh, my uh, airline uh, company, I have modeled it around the user journey. So, uh, for example, I have a domain around booking, right? So this is a, uh, a main domain because this is what differentiates my business. The payment domain is a secondary domain because it's not differentiating but still required. So in order to, to measure the, um, the efficiency of your modeling, you can look at KPIs such as the time to market or the time to release a change uh, to your application or the time to uh, identify a bug and resolve it. So today you have customers like IKEA, Spotify, and Skyscanner uh, who have embraced this concept and talk about it publicly. However, micro front-ends are not without any challenges. So for example, how can you keep the user experience consistent across multiple micro front ends. How you manage a uh, myriad of frameworks used across your organization and the impact on the average page size. And how you do cross micro front ends deployments and testing. Well, there are strategies to mitigate that. For example, by fostering the collaboration across the different teams, uh, by standardizing on the frameworks that are used on your, in your organization, 
And finally, by accepting to use, to use uh, some dumb components across the different teams. So um, when you define your micro front ends, you have to orchestrate them, right? So that should be also transparent for the user because they, they don't really care what's happening in the background. So how we can do that? You have multiple approaches. First, you've got the client-side approach where you will be leveraging the browser, the JavaScript, in order to load, unload micro front ends. With that approach, you can leverage the CDN caching, uh, but you need to make an additional HTTP uh, request to the backend, which can slow down the application. In some cases, actually, you don't even have the choice because you need to make a decision before the JavaScript is executed. Then you've got the server-side approach where uh, you keep all of the control on your backend, keep your client simple, but basically you do not benefit from uh, CDN caching, which is not great for the application speed. And finally, you've got the edge side approach where you combine benefits from both previous approaches. So uh, you will be pushing your orchestration logic to the edge uh, and you will be benefiting from CDN caching. However, you need to be able, uh, you need to be comfortable with uh, pushing logic to the CDN. Also, you can combine multiple approaches at the same time. Some logic is done on the client side, some orchestration logic is done on the edge side. So let's take a simple edge side implementation on AWS. Each team will own an S3 bucket in which uh, they will deploy their micro front end using a CI CD pipeline. As an entry, you will have CloudFront, uh, uh, which is the content delivery network of AWS, and you will leverage the native cache behaviors of CloudFront to route request. Uh, to the different buckets. For example, anything, any request that contains the payment uh, pattern in the URL, in the path of the URL, I'll be routing it to the S3 bucket of the payment team. When you, when you do that, you are now ready to customize the micro front end. So instead of building a uh, compute layer in front of the S3 bucket, you can leverage Lambda Attach to do that. So what is Lambda Attach? It's a, on one side, it's, it's a serverless uh, service. Basically, like AWS Lambda, you don't care about the underlying infrastructure, you just uh, run your code. On another hand, it is a uh, distributed service. So it is run, running in global locations close to users to reduce the latency of your application. So for those of you who are familiar with uh, AWS Lambda, Lambda Touch is similar, but has some uh, differences. First, it can only uh, be triggered by CloudFront, and you should uh, write it in North Virginia in order to deploy it globally. Second, it uh, allows Python, Node.js programming languages, and uh, it has a stricter limits in terms of memory, in terms of function uh, execution duration, uh, and timeouts. And finally, it is um, uh, build at 50 millisecond thresholds. So how customers are using Lambda Edge today? Uh, basically, with Lambda Edge, you can use it like a full programming language in order to manipulate uh, HTTP responses and requests of CloudFront, right? You can do uh, sophisticated things like making API calls or uh, using external libraries. So with this approach, we give you the, the freedom to uh, write your own logic at the edge instead of just providing 
rigid edge functionalities. You can also leverage the Lambda Attach developer community to re reuse some of the published components and adapt them to your own use case. So customers are using Lambda Attach in very different uh, ways. I kind of saw three buckets. The first one is uh, we're talking about really the simple HTTP oper uh, manipulations, for example, like adding cache control headers, normalizing user agent header to increase the cache hit ratio, things that you are used to with your CDNs. Then you've got these cases where you don't have simple control on your origin, and you want to overcome that. For example, you want to wrap your API, legacy API, in a new format. You want to uh, implement a new authorization mechanism or hide the directory structure of your origin. And finally, this is where I see really uh, customers innovating because they are building their application in a distributed uh, fashion from scratch. For example, low latency, uh, HTML rendering, uh, bot mitigation, user tracking, and so forth. So how can you use Lambda Edge? First, you need to define where you want to run it. With CloudFront, you have four different places, and each one has a different power. So you've got the, request, uh, the viewer request event that happens for every request coming to CloudFront before the cache. Then you've got the origin request event that happens basically when the object is not in CloudFront cache and we need to go back to the origin to get it. Then you've got the origin response event. So when the origin responds uh, and uh, anything that you manipulate basically will be cached. And finally, you've got the viewer response event that happens for every uh, response that we send back to the viewer. Looking at the code structure of Lambda Edge, it's quite simple. You've got the handler that is executed for every Lambda Edge invocation. Uh, we, uh, we give you um, basically an event object in which you have a uh, JSON representation of the HTTP request or response. Then you do your own logic. For example, here, simply I'm constructing a static response. And then you return it back to CloudFront. So if you want to learn more uh, uh, about Lambda Edge, more deep dive, uh, I recommend you this trilogy of uh, blog posts. The first one is, is about how you can optimize the design of your function to reduce the latency and your costs. The second one focuses more on these cases where in your function you need to get external data. For example, you want to download the configuration file or make an API call. And the third one is for operations. Basically, when you have like, an issue with your function, how you can uh, uh, basically identify the issue and uh, uh, resolve it quickly. So, um, so far, I talked about Lambda Edge, but not much about AWS Edge services. And usually when I do that, like I have behind me a big map of CloudFront points of presence, POPs. Uh, but this time, I don't want to do that because I got bored of it. So, I want us to play a game. It's called the higher and lower game. So each time, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, I will show you first a number, and then I'm going to ask you a question about a new number. So if the number is higher, raise your hand. If it's lower, just keep your hand uh, down. And I'll try to trick you. Cool. So uh, when last year, actually, we have celebrated the 10th anniversary of CloudFront uh, after it was being launched in 2008 with 14 pops. And at that time, the growth rate of pop number was at an incredible rate of 27% year over year. So do you think that the current 
growth rate is higher or lower? Yeah, easy one, right? So today it's growing at 50% uh, rate year over year. Uh, when I joined AWS two years ago, we had almost 90 pubs. Right now, I think it's 210. So why uh, deploying more pubs is important? Because we want to scale with demand. We want to be as close to users to reduce round-trip delays and improve the application uh, performance. Talking about latency, when we have deployed pops in United Arab Emirates, we noticed that the latency in this country of CloudFront dropped by 90%. We then deployed uh, earlier this year a pop in Brussels, um, like in Belgium, and in your opinion, the latency drop was higher or lower? Yeah, lower. So, Indeed, it was lower because it depends also on the geography, the network topology, and uh, the country size. So in the case of Bruxelles, basically, we were serving from Paris, Amsterdam, close by uh, locations compared to UAE. So if we talk from customer perspective, uh, how, how the latency impact uh, can, can be. I would like to take the case of Slack. So Slack, the famous enterprise communication solution. So uh, Slack, they have an API which allows you basically to list members in a channel, search for messages, and they wanted to protect the API from DDoS attacks. So they have selected CloudFront for that, used it as a reverse proxy without any caching, and they noticed that their, their response times has dropped. In your opinion, was it higher than 28% or lower? Yeah, worldwide. Actually, it was quite higher. It was 60%. So uh, they gained around 300 milliseconds globally. Great. The last one. Uh, we talked about DDoS. So in 2018, the largest DDoS attack that was reported in the press was around 1.35 terabit per second, as per my knowledge. Um, and that was actually a, a memcached reflection attack uh, targeting GitHub. So in your opinion, the largest DDoS attack that we saw on our network that year was higher or lower? Fair enough. It was slightly higher. Uh, actually, in that year uh, itself, 2018, uh, CloudFront has mitigated more than 84,000 DDoS attacks without any human intervention. So it is in part thanks to the um, automated protection on CloudFront, but also we deploy a deep packet scrubbing technology on all of our global network. Great, thank you for playing this game. Now let's move to the part uh, which is a little bit more advanced. So I will share with you four use cases and how you can implement them using Lambda Edge. I just want you to know that they are just reference implementation. You can do uh, basically your own implementation for your own use case. I will share code. I will share um, best practices. But the code is not for production, definitely. It just had to trim it to fit in the screen. So I will be working with the payment micro frontend because it was the one I worked on uh, with the You Build It, You Run It workshop. And basically, you've got the cloud fund, you've got the, the cache behavior, and you've got static content on the S3 bucket, such as images, style sheet, and JavaScript, and you've got the HTML. So first problem, 
the user navigates to the micro front end without adding the index HTML to it. If we don't do anything, the user will get 403 uh, forbidden. So in order to solve that, first I will create a new CloudFront cache behavior that will catch uh, the, the static assets. And then I will use Lambda at Edge in order to rewrite the URL and add index HTML back to S3. So this is the first best practice. Invoke Lambda Edge on the most specific CloudFront behavior in order to reduce the number of unnecessary invocations. And then I have the choice in this uh, specific case to use the viewer request event or the origin request event. In this case, this is another best practice. When you have the choice between them, use the origin one because basically it will only happen on cache misses, right? So you reduce the number of invocations as well. Looking at the code, quite simple, just getting the, the request object from, uh, from the event, adding the index HTML, and sending it back to CloudFront. Another use case that is quite popular is canary deployments. So you want to test a new version of your micro front end with a small subsegment of your users. Uh, that helps you iterate faster on your micro front end, basically. There are multiple ways of doing it. Uh, depends on, for example, if you want to have stickiness or not. In this simple case, I'm not implementing stickiness. What I want to do is to get, uh, basically, uh, a percentage breakdown uh, between uh, version one and version two from somewhere and basically throw a dice and then decide which version to, uh, to serve. So this is why I will be using DynamoDB to sort this percentage. However, it doesn't make sense to make a call from a distributed service like Lambda Attach to a single location like DynamoDB. So this is another best practice. Uh, use DynamoDB global tables and to replicate your uh, basically the configuration file to multiple regions across the world, and Lambda Edge will go and fetch it from the nearest DynamoDB table. Uh, in this case, I'm using also the viewer request event because um, I want to make this decision before the CloudFront cache. Let's look at the code. First, I'm using the environment variables to uh, get the region associated to where the Lambda Edge was executed. And based on that, I'm choosing the nearest DynamoDB table. Then, I'm defining my DynamoDB client outside of the handler as a global variable. So this is another uh, uh, best practice, um, leveraging global variables because they persist across multiple Lambda Edge invocations. Inside of the, this DynamoDB uh, client, I'm using an HTTP Keep Alive agent because I want to persist the connection to DynamoDB. I don't want for every Lambda Edge invocation to establish the TCP TLS connection, which adds up in latency. And finally, in the, in the handler itself, basically I make the request, uh, query about the, uh, uh, the distribution uh, between version one and version two, and based on that, throw the dice, and then uh, uh, rewrite the URL to the correct version. So I want to show you the impact of these two uh, uh, changes on the average execution of Lambda at Edge function. For that, I have implemented this micro front end. I have uh, um, used a synthetic monitoring tool to make requests uh, across the world. 
Uh, and I have noted the execution duration of Lambda Touch in multiple regions. For example, in Singapore, initially it was around 630 milliseconds. When I enabled DynamoDB global tables, it dropped to 60 milliseconds, so almost 10 times. Then, when I used the persistent connection, you know, using the uh, uh, Keep Alive agent, it dropped to 30 milliseconds, so almost five times uh, uh, less. Great, another uh, common use case is localization of your content. So if you are operating in multiple, uh, basically, regions, geographies, and, and you want to, to provide for the same content different versions, according, for example, the language and the country. So to optimize SEO, you need to have separate URLs for each of the localized content. What I will be doing is first, I will update my cache behavior uh, to basically add in my URLs this localization information in the beginning of the URL. For example, slash UK slash EN, English, right? For someone coming from the United Kingdom and who uh, speaks English. When the user makes a request, I will read the accept language header and also will check the header uh, uh, that is sent by CloudFront that indicates the country of the user. And then in my Lambda Touch function, I will uh, basically compare uh, the URL with this information. Either I'll, I will rewrite the URL to the correct version on S3, or if the, the URL doesn't respect the format, for example, doesn't have the uh, UK uh, EN in it, I'll re redirect it to the correct format. I'm using the origin request in this case with, uh, with Lambda Touch. So in order to have access uh, to these headers in Lambda Touch, you need to change the configuration of CloudFront. So you need to forward both of these headers, the CloudFront viewer country and the accept language header. However, by doing that, you add them to the cache key, which might reduce your cache hit ratio. So this is another best practice. You can normalize these headers before putting them in the cache key uh, by using also a lambda touch function on viewer request event. The code is quite straightforward. I'm consuming both headers uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the function, and then I have like my logic. And based on that, either I will uh, rewrite the URL to the origin or return a uh, redirection, 302. Uh, uh, okay, the last one. So this is for hardening the security of your micro front end. I will be leveraging some known security headers to increase the privacy for your users and your micro front end. So far, we have used the viewer request event and the origin request event. This time, I will be using the origin response event because uh, the changes, the headers that I will add to the response coming from the origin will stay in cache. So looking at the code, I'm going to give you uh, like an example of two headers that, that I've added. First one is the strict transport security that basically tells the browser all of the subsequent requests to this domain should happen on HTTPS, a secure connection. The other one is content security policy that help detect and protect against uh, uh, attacks such as cross-site scripting and data injection attacks. 
And to show you like the impact uh, on the security of the micro front end, I have um, used the Mozilla Observatory uh, to basically grade the security of, uh, of my uh, micro front end. So at the beginning, basically it has an F score, and then once adding the, the headers, it went up to A+. A simple win to, uh, to have. So, so far, uh, I have introduced the microfront top topic. I told you about this uh, workshop where we built a fictive airline uh, website, talked about my, uh, Lambda Tesh, how you can customize the microfront end. But I would like to tell you that this is not just theory. Uh, there's a real airline company that is implementing the same concept uh, using CloudFront and Lambda Tesh. I'm talking here about Ryanair, so one of the uh, largest European uh, airlines. And um, earlier this year, Fabrizio Fortunato, who uh, works at Ryanair, have explained in, uh, in London Summit how they have done their own implementation. For example, in the Canary deployment, they integrate Lambda Edge with their feature management software called LaunchDarkly. All right. With that, I will hand the mic to Luca. Please give him a warm welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so today I'm, I'm here mainly for sharing uh, uh, the learnings that we, we had in the last uh, two years uh, in, in the zone about Lambda the Edge and, and Mic Frontends. First of all, uh, how many of you know what the zone is? Raise your hands. Okay, a few of you, okay. So uh, for the other people that don't know what the zone is, the zone is an OTT platform uh, that is streaming live and on-demand uh, sport events uh, around the globe. So currently we're available in nine countries and we, we are targeting 40 different devices between um, set-top boxes, console, TVs, mobile, and web. Uh, it's a really interesting proposition and uh, it's proposing uh, different challenges uh, that we are overcoming with the latest and greatest technologies. And uh, that's why today I'm here talking about those two topics. So let's start with uh, what microphone tens means for, for the zone, because uh, as Ashraf was uh, explaining at the beginning, there are different implementations that you can have. So we started from the concept of, of uh, uh, subdomains. And when I talk about subdomains and you're familiar with domain-driven design, think exactly about the right thing. So we started defining what are for us, how we can create business value around uh, a specific uh, uh, area of the application, to taking consideration user journey, taking consideration the, how our users were interacting with the previous uh, single page application. And we discovered very soon that there are some areas that were used more than others. And uh, if a user was authenticated, it was very unlikely that it was leaving uh, that specific area of the application. So that was, was absolutely great. The other thing is of, of doing this exercise uh, is that we allowed, uh, this allowed us to um, identify not only on, for the back end the different subdomains, but also um, uh, on the front end. So therefore, we, hand, we have a hand-to-end -hand autonomy across teams. So we have the possibility to take local decision over global decisions that in particular in a distributed teams um, situation like we have, that we have 350 people roughly uh, around four different locations in Europe. Um, these things speed up drastically the, the amount of, of uh, uh, throughput that we have um, for delivering new functionalities, fixing bugs, and uh, anything else. So that was uh, uh, the, the first step that we took. 
The second thing is how we concretely identify um, microphone tens. So in our case, uh, we um, identify um, uh, vertically a microphone. You, usually when you talk about microphone tens, you can, uh, you, the first question that you have to ask yourself is, how do you want to slice your application? Is it like an horizontal slicing where you, you have multiple microphone tens in the same page? Or is it a vertical slicing where you have just one microphone 10 every time loaded inside your application. So we, we took the ladder, and uh, there are strong reasons for, for that, mainly because uh, if you think, uh, we, we really think that currently, if we want to represent a domain, header or footer couldn't represent a domain deeply. But instead, if we say the catalog experience represents a domain, yes, that can create business value. Uh, it's the same for uh, um, the sign-in, uh, uh, let's say, um, flow or the sign-up flow, exactly the same thing. So we, we represent them in single-page application, vast majority of the time, or even to single pages. For landing page, for instance, we have just one single page. We generate static files that have uh, sometimes CSS in line and JavaScript in line, uh, and we serve that because what we notice is that a lot of users are, are just going to our website, understanding what is the proposition, uh, and then maybe leaving. Uh, they don't move even move forward. So it wasn't meaningless the fact that to have done, download the entire code base for, for doing everything, any single part of the application, um, and waiting for just looking what the service is proposing. So the other thing that we're, uh, we were conscious, uh, the other decision we take is uh, um, what is the entry point? So usually there are frameworks that, that have as entry point the JavaScript file. But uh, the reality though is that we wanted to use a, a standard, so HTML, uh, mainly because we can have uh, server-side rendering applied at compile time. So we can have a skeleton of the application and provide immediate feedback to the user um, without the need of downloading a JavaScript file, parsing, and, and, and then rendering uh, something. So we, we save a lot of time just to provide the, the first feedback to the user. The, sec the, the last thing that uh, I would like to, to discuss with you is the orchestration part. So as Asher have said, uh, there are different ways that you can orchestrate microphone tents, and they're not mutually exclusive. The approach that we took was uh, having two layers of orchestration. One, one is on the edge, and the other one is uh, a client-side orchestration, and there are strong reasons for, for, for both. But let's start with the client-side one. So usually if you go to the zone.com, the moment that you hit the, the, the URL, uh, we serve to the browser a static file called the bootstrap that is our entry point. The bootstrap is, uh, is represented in HTML file with some tiny JavaScript. And what it does basically uh, is understanding the situation, how it does that. So we have an API that allows us to uh, contextualize where the bootstrap is running, in which country, for instance, or in which device, and provide several other information like feature flags, for instance, and other, other information that needs to be, uh, let's say, shared uh, with, with specific uh, um, client. The second thing, the second responsibility of the bootstrap is loading and unloading microphone 10. For us, the relation is always one-to-one. -one. So we load one microphone 10 per time. We never load multiple of them. Um, and that is very key for us because obviously the way how you load and unload uh, share different uh, um, challenges if you think uh, instead of composing a page with multiple microphone tents. So that is uh, another important thing. For us, because we are targeting 40 different devices, another important thing is 
trying to wrap all the complexity around uh, uh, writing an, an information, a file, or, or storing something on, on the web storage uh, that is different device by device, ideally, uh, in a specific place. So if we had, we decided to wrap this layer of uh, abstraction that is taking care about writing a specific file on a Tizen device over a Fire TV one or another one uh, at the bootstrap level, because the bootstrap is, let's say, specific to a, a specific target, but the microphone tent shouldn't. So we have a catalog uh, microphone then that is available for all the TVs that is shared across all the TVs. We don't have a, a specific one for ties and a specific one for, because we, the reality is we are trying to keep separated, uh, let's say, uh, the, the, the things that are target specific uh, towards what is business specific. The last bit is the, the sharing configuration. So the bootstrap, the first thing that does, apart from uh, understanding if the user is authenticated or not and retrieving some information uh, on the context, is also exposing some APIs that are used by other microphone tents. And uh, those APIs allows the microphone tent to store a specific thing they don't, they don't care where, but they, they, they know that they can store these things um, or retrieve certain things that are stored already in, in web storage. Um, the other thing that it does is providing some lifecycle methods, so the microphone 10 knows when it's going to be unloaded, so it can clear up all the dependency or the listener and everything. Um, or it can also, uh, let's say, uh, provide some parameters that are shared and used across different microphone 10s, like, for instance, which language the user would like to read uh, and, and engage with our interface. So there are a few things that, uh, that are doing. So th that's the first thing that is uh, around the client-side orchestration. So, why do we need an edge-side orchestration? That's the other question, right? So there are a few things that I definitely envy from, from microservices world. Because the reality is there are some techniques that I would really like to have on the front end as well, like uh, uh, blue-green deployment, uh, canary releases. So what we are doing is canary releases for front end with Lambda the Edge. Uh, and we will see later on how we are going to do that. But that is allowing us to ease the, the new f features uh, and the new release of our application based on the country and the browser of the user. Um, that is pretty great. The other thing is we had a single page application uh, that was uh, um, live for, for a while. And I cannot ask to the business to wait for nine months before they see the new version of the application because it wouldn't make any sense. We want to be agile, we want to deliver fast and, and try things and see if they work properly. So what we have done is applying a strangle pattern uh, on the edge. And basically, based on the path of, of, the, um, of, the, uh, path of, of the, the website, we were um, redirecting to the old version or the new version, and that is a great way to create value, immediate value for the customer and also for the company because you prove that your idea is working and is moving forward. The uh, third thing that we, we decided to do is, uh, okay, so we have to index some, some content. We want to have like bots that are retrieving those information. How do we do that? So we decided to, to, to use Lambda the Edge for redirecting the, um, the bots to a specific version of our application that is heavily optimized for them. The last thing is uh, performance improvements. One thing that we were serving before, all the static files were coming from uh, the uh, application layer, therefore from origin. What we, we decided to do is moving everything on S3 and using Lambda the Edge for adding a, the bit of logic that we need for serving the right uh, artifact to, for the right uh, target and, and, and device. So those are the, the four reasons why we, we decided to go on, on the edge uh, for, on top of the client side. 
So let's see how the architecture works. So this is a high-level architecture, but if we start from left and we go to the right, so let's start from left. So the user is coming to the zone.com and uh, uh, they hit CloudFront that's triggering the first uh, Lambda at the edge that is the origin request. And here the per first peculiarity. Um, so currently, we didn't want to change the parameters of our canary releases uh, inside the code of the Lambda. So we had to come up with a solution that could allow us to, to let's say, retrieve this information externally. So we come up with uh, the solution of having a, a config JSON file that is living in another S3 bucket and, uh, and is served by another CloudFront distribution for uh, that every time that the, the Lambda is uh, uh, triggered, we retrieves the first time and keep in memory for the entire lifecycle of the Lambda. Uh, and the beauty of this, this technique is basically inside the JSON file, we can uh, change the, how many users are uh, in, in the specific browser and country can see uh, a new micro front end or live in the old world. And uh, we will see in a moment how it works. The other thing that we have in this architecture is uh, obviously Amazon S3 S bucket um, for, uh, for, let's say, storing all our files, static files. And then we have a Lambda origin response that instead is used for uh, um, issuing a cookie for creating the stickiness. Because the reality is we want to have authenticated and unauthenticated users to see the same, to have the same experience during uh, their journey inside our application. Okay, so let's see how we, we have done uh, canary releases and sticky sessions. Uh, so the first thing is um, canary releases. So canary releases, what we, we, we wanted to achieve here is easing the traffic. So if we have a new version of our microphone 10, we want to serve just for a, a certain percentage of our user uh, the new version and see in, in production if everything was working properly. And if it wasn't just saying, okay, 0% of the traffic is going to the new version, 100% on the, on the old one. In order to do, to do that, what we have done is, imagine that you are a, a zone user, and uh, um, every time that you access the zone, we issue a cookie. And in, inside that cookie, you have a number that could be from uh, uh, 0 to 100, okay? So in this case, uh, this user has a, a number 20. And when he's requesting a specific page, the cookie is going with the, with the request. And the Lambda uh, at the edge, at the origin, what we said is the first thing is retrieving a configuration JSON file when it's triggered. Inside this configuration, configuration file, we have sp specific information, like uh, if the user is in US and is using Chrome, 40% of them should uh, see the, the, um, the new application. And guess what? That's what we're going to serve. The user has inside his, his cookie the number 20, so it's definitely under 40, and therefore we are passing the, the new version. Obviously, this is going to change the moment that uh, we have another user, and this user has the number 83. But again, it's just a, a, a random number that we generate and the lambda the edge. So that is a, um, a good way to do canary releases because the moment that I can change uh, the, the, the number inside the JSON file, automatically I can increase 100% of the traffic on the new version if you see that everything is working properly or rolling back, just literally changing a value inside the JSON file. So in this case, if we have the user that has uh, the number 83, um, what's happening that is we are going to serve the, the, the previous version mainly because uh, there was a 30%, 40% of the user that should see the new version and not more than that. So this is like a very simple technique but very effective that allowed, that, allowed us to uh, redirect traffic to the right version and see in production the behavior of our users. So uh, 
we talk about canal release, we talk about uh, um, uh, stickiness. So what are the responsibilities of those lambdas? So I, I summarize here what we are doing for each single lambda. So the first one uh, is the origin request, uh, and uh, uh, the first key thing that he's doing is uh, redirection for fixed URL. Another use case that we have is, imagine that you have like a landing page that is uh, with a promotion that is not available anymore. So you want to redirect the user somewhere else that provided good experience. So we are doing that at the moment and, and then on the lab at the edge, um, because we know let's say, the status of, of our landing pages. Another example is uh, the kind of release. There, in, in the Lambda the Edge origin uh, request, we are managing the kind of release based on country and browser. Those are the two uh, dimensions that we take care. The second, uh, the third thing is that uh, we have a, a bit of logic that is create, generating a random number between um, uh, one, and one and 100, and uh, if the, there isn't any cookie present, otherwise it will stick with the, the, the cookie parameter that is inside. Um, the last bit is redirection for bots, so we understand if the user agent that is requesting the page is a bot or not, and based on that we provide the right, uh, um, the right version of our application uh, if he's a human being or not. On the origin response, we are doing slightly less, but quite important things. So we are issuing effectively the cookie with the random number that was generating by the origin request. And then we are handling possible errors because maybe we cannot retrieve a specific file and S3 is returning an error. So in that case, we can manage also uh, uh, specific errors that are happening at, at that level there. So how do we do that? On the origin request, for instance, as you can see, there are a few comments there, and those comments are the APIs that you should use if you want to retrieve uh, the user agent and uh, the viewer country. But obviously, the AWS has, uh, uh, let's say, uh, implemented these in a smart way, so it's very extensible, so if tomorrow they are adding new uh, API, they can easily manage that. For us, um, in particular, if you are a developer, uh, we wanted to create something that was, let's say, easy to, to read. So we create this CF event that is basically wrapping this logic and is, uh, we pass some uh, enums uh, inside it and we retrieve the same thing. But basically what is doing the code in the white is uh, uh, retrieving the parameter that you can find in, in the comments inside this slide. So as you can see, it's very easy to find because we have all those information available in the headers uh, from, uh, from CloudFront. So then, how do we issue the cookie? So in, there are three lines of code that are highlighted here in, in the uh, center part. And as you can see here, we have like, uh, we set a cookie inside the headers and we just pass the parameter that we need based on the path that we wanted to assign that specific thing. So potentially you can assign also a cookie to a specific path of the application, not to the entire application. That is another, uh, let's say, uh, peculiarity that you, you can do. It depends really of uh, what are the, your use cases. Okay, but we talk about SEO, and SEO is, is an important topic, right? Because nowadays we want to, to have our content is available on search engines. So SEO, uh, we have a few uh, things that we need to take care of. So the first one is understanding the difference between um, the dynamic rendering versus standard implementation. So dynamic rendering is a new technique that was announced by Google uh, this year uh, where Finally, we can redirect the bot to a specific version of our website without serving the same version that we are serving to the users. That is great because it means that a lot of trade-offs are dedicated to uh, a different website and we don't need to implement inside our application. The Google bot 
finally from this year is up to date with the latest version of Chrome. So we can use the latest and greatest JavaScript, uh, um, let's say, features compared to before that was, uh, um, let's say, stick with, uh, I think if I remember well, was version 40 uh, of Chrome. So it was way behind that we need to make a lot of trade-offs in order to have something that is working. Another interesting bit that we need to bear in mind is that we have a five-second indexing rule that is uh, um, available with, with crawlers. And what does it mean is in five seconds, so the crawler is waiting five seconds before uh, indexing the content inside the page, and therefore we need to have all of our virtual DOM um, implementation ready and it should be available inside the DOM because at that moment, after five seconds, the, the crawler is just trying to index the page. So bear in mind if you're using a, a virtual DOM library that are quite popular nowadays on the front end, that he has, he has to have performances and you cannot have like a page too long because otherwise your risk do not stay inside the five seconds. Same for images and other things. So you need to um, have a budget around your page. The last thing that is more a note is that bear in mind that Googlebot, uh, unfortunately, doesn't retain the application state. So you cannot leverage with the Googlebot cookies or, or web storage. So that's another thing that you need to bear in mind when you are serving your page uh, to, uh, to uh, a bot. Okay, that said, let's see how we have uh, overcome this, this challenge, right? So, it looks complex, but it's uh, less complex than uh, how it looks. So you can break this diagram in three parts. The part on the left is um, the one that we discussed up to now, right? So now we can discuss the part on the right. Okay, so what we have done. So as we said, we have an Amazon S3 bucket that is available with uh, our static files. So we thought, okay, perfect. So if we have this bucket, we can uh, add, add an additional folder where we are storing all our optimized pages. And what we do basically, as you can see here, is few things. We are generating pages every 12 hours. And what does it mean is, uh, as you see at the bottom of this diagram, there is the, a cloud icon with the zone API. So what we do, we, um, we are fetching our uh, API that are consumed by our um, client application. And we are uh, squeezing everything inside um, a queue and we start to generate the, um, the, the, our pages in an optimized way for the bot. Uh, and that is very, very important because um, this allows us to decorate and add additional information that could be hidden unless the user is interacting with, uh, with the page. Uh, so it's, it's a, a really nice way to uh, provide more information to be indexed by, by, by the bot. So here we have like a pages trigger that um, what it does is retrieving the information from our APIs and create generated the SEO optimized pages based on templates. We have a, a step function, uh, let's say flow that is uh, uh, triggered by, by the pages trigger uh, and is uh, it's basically generating all the stuff and creating uh, and storing them inside the, another S3 bucket that we call the index cache. At the end of everything, we need to generate a sitemap because the sitemap is the first thing that the bot will read in order to understand what he has to index, right? So in this case, um, we have like the sitemap generator that is retrieving when all the things are, are finished that he uh, knows through the, the step function application, uh, so sorry, step, step function flow, uh, and is retrieving uh, what is the, the latest time of, of the uh, sitemap and is understanding when was the last uh, calculation, so it's generating all the sitemap based on, on the, the, the pages that are inside the index cache. 
There is one bit, though, that we need to bear in mind. Crawlers, they don't just need to know and, and index all the, the, the content. They need also need to know if there are new content or are content that have already indexed it before. So in order to do that, what we have done is uh, we know when the, the sitemap uh, generator finishes the, to generate the sitemap. So at that time, we call a, a, configurator, a configuration updater. And what it does is retrieving a timestamp, a Unix timestamp that we uh, generate inside the file, and is taking this timestamp and uh, adding inside the config JSON file that I described before for making kernel releases. So the Lambda at that stage, it will have all the information also to uh, tell to the uh, crawler, oh, by the way, this is a stale page, so you don't have to index again, or this is a new page, so please go ahead and, and crawl all the content. Uh, and, and that is, uh, uh, let's say, um, a, a nice way to manage uh, this kind of, uh, of challenge. So here, as I said, we retrieve uh, the latest time of, of uh, uh, the page generated. We add inside the config JSON. And then uh, we, we use this timestamp time for identifying based on the timestamp of the file if we need to return um, a 200 or, a, uh, I don't know, another, another um, uh, response code. So that is basically the, the crux. Obviously, it, it sounds all great and, uh, and, and quick as, and uh, very smooth to implement, but let's go to the objective part of this implementation. So this is a, a, a snapshot that I take, um, a screenshot that I took like uh, um, in September. And here you can see the execution time of our Lambda on the, at the edge, obviously. So this one is Frankfurt, where we have one of our, uh, let's say, where, where it was executed, because we have like quite a few uh, user, European users that are using uh, that uh, uh, edge location. And here, what we have is, as you can see, is uh, uh, we have uh, an execution time that is less than a millisecond. And that means that all the logic that I described up so, so far is literally wrapped inside a millisecond. Uh, that is pretty fast, if you ask me compared to what we had before that we, on top of, uh, of, of that, obviously you need to have the latency and all the other things, but in reality, the execution time of Lambda the Edge, despite the logic is, if you want, fairly complex, uh, it's, um, um, it, it's pretty fast. But let's move forward, let's talk, uh, so, so um, um, we need to take into consideration also the, um, let's say, money as aspect of, of the thing, right? It's not just uh, uh, the technology part, because we need to take into consideration everything. So just to give you some real numbers, so those are the uh, three um, months that I, I, I wanted to take, because one, June in particular, was the end of the season for us, uh, for several soccer uh, leagues. July was, uh, let's say, the summer time, so the, the pause during the leagues, and then we have like the ramp up in August of all the new uh, soccer leagues. So you can see that we can scale without many problems. So we are talking about roughly um, 600 million invocation of Lambda per month in, uh, in the, at peak. And the cost of that, it wasn't incredibly high. It wasn't even $1,000. Uh, and that for us was a, a nice surprise because obviously uh, we create a lot of value for our users and to a certain extent it was quite, it was quite cheap. So let's try to wrap up what are the, the key takeaways for us. So first of all, we were able to have an execution time of one millisecond, and uh, uh, without Lambda at the edge, it took hundreds of milliseconds before we were able to serve something. And that is great. So secondly, the cost 
it was me quite meaningless compared to the amount of execution and logic we were running uh, at that stage. Then there is another technical aspect. So currently, our setup is scalable worldwide because it's AWS that is taking care about that. We don't need to understand when we have peak of traffic or other stuff uh, that we need to, to put uh, up more ECS task or uh, EC2, whatever it is. It's everything handled by, by uh, AWS and uh, uh, the network of, of uh, CDN that they have. Last but not least, we create confidence inside the teams because finally the teams can iterate quickly on delivering a new feature without impacting the entire application. You just add a new feature, deploy independently, and, and you can ease the traffic around uh, a specific microphone tent. And that's all of it for me. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Luca.